Grab your popcorn and snacks. Find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Good evening, everybody. How's everybody doing? I hope you said good, because I'm doing really good today. I think I got this internet thing down, knock on wood. Do you know how that goes? It's kind of like the perfect game in baseball. You say something about it, the next thing you know, everything explodes on you. So we're just gonna we're just gonna knock on wood on that one that I got the issues taken care of. But anyway, welcome. My name is Charlotte. I'm gonna be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Hawks. I hate hang, things hanging on me. California Hawks Paranormal Investigation Team, based out of this, uh, Sacramento, California. We are 45 strong up and down the state. Which means if you have a paranormal issue, we can help you out. It might take us a couple days. Because when people think of California, what, what do they think of? It's kind of like Hawaii. They think of beaches. Now we have beaches everywhere. Well, we do. We actually do have a lot of beaches. But we've also got mountains, and we've got deserts, and we've got a lot of farmland. Okay? So we got all that going on. And it might, like I said, it's, it's a huge, huge state. It might take us a while to get to you, but we will get to you. If we can't get to you right away... We do have mediums on staff that can call you and talk to you about what might possibly be going on in your business or residence, and they can sometimes calm things down until we can get out there. It's not going to take us more than a couple days. Like I said, we got 45 people up and down the state, so it's just a question of coordinating to get them out to you. All right. Okay. That being said, welcome, welcome, welcome. If you're watching from Facebook tonight and you haven't done so already, if you like what you hear, please be sure to hit that follow button. Also, uh... If you like what you hear, be sure to hit those thumbs up, show me some love, some hearts, some happy faces, that kind of thing. Comment, be free to comment, because when you do that and you interact, it makes it puts us higher in the FYP. And what that does is, not only do you guys get to see the show, but, it get, but Facebook will take it and move it up to a lot further out for other people to see the show. So that's cool. They, um, to, YouTube works the same way, okay? So... If you like what you see tonight and you're watching from YouTube or looking for subscribers, please please subscribe. We, we do a show every night, six days, uh, Sunday through Friday. Okay, we do a show every night, sometimes Saturday as, as well. Sunday we read from a paranormal theme book, usually a true story like the one we're reading now, Omnipresent by Lynn Monet. Sometimes we just read a fantasy book. It just depends on, on, on what comes our way. But we do that every Sunday for an hour. So you can kind of wind, uh, wind down from your weekend and get ready for your, you know, for your work week. So we do that. And then the rest of the week, we have all kinds of topics, like tonight. Because I'm a journalist. I'm a journalist, photojournalist. That's my real job. And uh, so I like to trade it up. I love paranormal. I mean, I'm, like I said, I've, been, I've been ghost hunting for 19 years. Love my para- love paranormal stuff, but I also love hard news stuff. Okay, so that's where the, that's where the journalist in me comes in. So we're always trading it up. So if you go to YouTube and you check out our site, you check out our YouTube at youtube.com forward slash at California Haunts Radio, we have 681 shows over there for you to look at. And believe me, it's overwhelming. So what I've started to do is I've taken those shows and I put them under categories so you can find them easier. You like UFO and alien abductions? Boom, there's a folder for that. You like Nancy Mats on Fridays? Boom, there's a folder for that. You like stuff like this, true, true crime stuff and things like this? Boom, there's a folder for that. Oh, I just froze up. Uh-oh. Okay, hang on. Let me get caught up here. There we go. Video's kind of jerky. All right. Anyway, um, wow. I never had to do that before. That's new for me on, on my end. Okay, I'm back. Uh, anyway, so uh, <laughs> I never got like that before where I slowed down. That was... Like one of those one of those Godzilla movies, right? Did you... <laughs> okay. Anyway, so yeah, so if you go to, if you go to the YouTube page, you will see all that. Because not only when you go in, there's just this big blob of videos. I know I used to go in and try and find like older guests to have them back on, right? Figure out what they were on. Gave me migraines. That's why I decided to put all this stuff in categories. And if you're looking through the categories and you think you see something that might be out of place, let me know. Okay. Also, again, please subscribe. Same thing over YouTube. If you like the show and you like what you see today. Hit those hearts, hit those happy faces, hit all that other stuff, and that helps us with the FYP. Okay? Comment, do all that good stuff. And that's what we're looking for, right? That's the whole point of this is to get the word out about this show, 
to others, right? I mean, if you're sitting at home tonight watching this thing over dinner and then you've got other people in the house, say, come on, there's this little show here that, that you're going to like. This, this, this little show, like, like a little engine that could. Quick two announcements before we get rolling is that tomorrow night is going to be the Sturgeon Moon, the first full moon of August. And I'm going to be leading a meditation after the show about 745. I'll be leading a guided meditation to the Sturgeon Moon. And if you have anything that unsolved, you know, under business or anything like that, or health issues that you would like to meditate for to get the month of August started, come on over. Go to the California Haunts Meetup page. Just type in California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team Meetup. Go to events and sign up over there. And I'll take you through a guided meditation. I'm hoping that if we can get this going, that we can meditate every evening or every morning. You know, and everybody can learn to do different health meditations and things like that. So that's what, what I hope and what actually transpires. Okay? So head on over there. Saturday, I'm teaching a psychic development class, first level class. It teaches you how to open and close that psychic door, how to visit your spirit library and visit your, your spirit guys and, and, all, and all kinds of, and your spirit animal and all kinds of things. And that's Saturday at 7 p.m., I think 6 p.m. Pacific on Saturday. So check that class out as well. That's over at the meetup. And another one at the meetup is I'm recruiting for new members. And I've got five spots open. Uh, come on over there. I, it's a full training thing. I'm very, I'm very anal about training and how I bring people on the team. So everybody has, even even my regular team members have to go through this training. It's a, it's a two-hour training. And then after that, you you go to dinner with us, get a face-to-face with, with the investigators, and then we take it from there and take out an investigation. So check that out. The meetup that's going to be Sunday. So head on over there, California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team meetup. Now, as we get started, my real job, right now I'm a freelance reporter for, for five different newspapers. And I used to be, for six years, I was on a crime beat in Yellow County. Had a blast. My dad was one of these people that he always, well, I think secretly he wanted to be a police officer, but he was always like, like high in security. And as a kid, we were chasing. You know, my, my father would bundle me up and drag me out in the middle of the night when there were fires and anything going on in the neighborhood and stuff. You know, anything having to do police, anything having to do with fire, we were there. So it was a natural thing for me when I went to work for this particular newspaper in Woodland to become a cop and crime reporter because that's what I grew up doing. And so, you know, time's going down the freeway, the side of the freeway where nobody else can go, you know, only the police drive and all that stuff. I've seen a lot. I've seen. I've seen. I've seen bodies. Real bad shape bodies. You know. I've been there, done that, done stories on evidence rooms. Uh, real, real good friend with the uh, county coroner in Yellow County. Used to go there a lot, do stories on them. So I'm real excited to have my guest on. Barbara Butcher. Spent 23 years, as a death investigator. Okay. I'm gonna let her tell her story. Because it comes, it sounds better coming from her than me. But I can't wait to talk to her because, I, you know, I, I know I, I'm not I'm not an expert at this stuff, but I know basically stuff because I used to. Not only I'm one of these reporters that not only am I on the beat, but I'm reading books on the side. Like I, I've been reading, um, you know, just not, not true well, true homicide, but also you know, some of the some of the top corners in the world. I have read their books because I wanted to know more about it. When I talked to the police, you know, and did my interviews, I wanted to be able to give better detail to my readers. So I learned all about that stuff. So um, I'm really eager to, ha- to have her on. So without further ado, let me bring her in. And here we go. Good afternoon. Good evening. Hey, Charlotte. Nice to see you. It's nice to see you. It's nice to meet you. Yep. Here at 930 at night in New York now. Let's see what time is it. Oh, yes. 6.30. All right, good. 6.30 for me. Not too late for you, is it? No. Oh. No, you kidding? New York never sleeps. And you're used to getting, I mean, you're retired, you're, you're retired now, right? Yeah. Retired? Well, pretty, yeah, from the streets you, anyway. Well, you're, you're used to getting called out all hours anyways. <laughs> those years. Tell me about you. Well, let's see. I was a New York City death investigator for about 23 years. I, um, I started out with the medical examiner's office back in 1992, back when, when, the, when the homicide rate was 2,400 a year. Now you're lucky if you get 400 homicides, but back then we had 2,400 a year. So I was a very busy girl. 
um, my job was, you know, when, you, when people think of the coroner or medical examiner, they think about autopsy. Mm-hmm. And that's that's right. That's what the forensic pathologist does. They do an mm-hmm. autopsy on a body to discover the, the cause of death. Mm-hmm. But my job was to determine the manner of death. So a gunshot wound is just a hole in the head, right? Right. When it's, when it's on a table. But is that a homicide, a suicide, or an accident? Mm-hmm. And in order to determine that, you need to go to the scene and do a thorough investigation, working with the police, interviewing witnesses, examining the body in the scene, and gathering all the information you can there. Because that gives the medical examiner or the forensic pathologist the context for the death. Mm-hmm. Now they can say, based on my report, based on my photographs and my assessment, now they can say homicide, suicide, or accident. So I got to do the good part of the job, mm-hmm. going out there, spooking around in people's houses, out in the fields, uh, you know, down in down in the tunnels of New York and in the rivers, just looking at dead bodies and figuring out what happened. It was very exciting. Now, I heard you on another show, and you had said that when you started this, you had no training in this at all. Well, I had... I had medical training. I was a physician assistant working in surgery. And at the time, you had to be either a PA, physician assistant, or mm-hmm. a doctor. Um, and then the city, the, the medical examiner, they gave you the training to investigate. So mm-hmm. for three months, I followed all the senior investigators around doing every death in town. I went to the uh, police academy um, for, you know, special training in homicide and criminal investigations. I went to the FBI Academy uh, for learning scene work and, and evidence gathering, um, and then took classes. And before you know it, I was out there poking around myself. What drew you to do this type of work? What drew me? Um, well, when I was a little kid, I was excessively curious and my brothers and sisters, we used to leave clues around the house for each other. And I don't, I don't know what the hell those clues were, but they were just little things to figure out. And I enjoyed that. But I got a, um, I like science. And so for my birthday one year, I got a dissecting kit and a frog, in from, uh, a dead one, in formaldehyde. And I dissected it and figured out, oh, here's how the muscles attach to the bones and here's where the brain is and everything else. And the other kids in the neighborhood thought that was real cool. So they started bringing me roadkill. So I'd look at the roadkill and I'd say, oh, yeah, yeah, now this possum, you see these little wiggly black lines on his across his back? See how they run parallel? That's tire tracks. So this little possum was run over. So I figured out the cause and manner of death, right? Right. And uh, that became, I mean, I just, I just love doing that. Um, but then, you know, years pass, things happen. And uh, I mean, the truth of it is, the way I got this job, I was, you know, I had been working in hospitals. I was a hospital administrator. I was working in surgery. But I was kind of bored and I was kind of messed up. I was also kind of drinking. Um, so <laughs> I had become a bit of an alcoholic. And uh, when things got real bad, I got sober. And one of the benefits of getting sober in New York State is that you get, um, uh, you get services to help you, to help you rebuild your life. And I took something called EPRA, the Employment Program for Recovering Alcoholics. Mm-hmm. And there they did these, uh, these tests, Minnesota Multiphasic, uh, Myers-Briggs Preferential, all these kind of things. At the end of the tests... The counselor said to me, Barbara, you should either be a poultry veterinarian or a coroner. I said, poultry? Why poultry? He said, well, you know, you're good with diagnostics and stuff. You'd be good taking care of animals, but you get too emotionally involved. Puppies and kittens, that would really upset you. But chickens? No, they have beady little eyes. Nobody cares about them. (laughs) I said, "Uh, I think I'll take dead people. He said, all right, coroner's a good job for you. Um... But, you know, what What I want you to do is call the one person in New York who you think has the best job in the world and ask if you can talk about his work or her work. And I did. I called the chief medical examiner, Dr. Charles Hirsch. And I said, can I come in and find out about what you do? He said, sure. 
Well, I went in there and I talked to him. I had a great time and I met the guys and they offered me a job. They had an opening for an investigator and I fit it. So it was the luck, the absolute luck of my life to be a drunk who got sober, who got the best job in the world. That's awesome. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Tell, me, tell me about, I mean, because obviously you had to have some on-the-job training. And yeah. police, police officers tend to have a, an offbeat sense of humor. So tell me about your training and, and did they, did, did they um, utilize their sense of humor when they were training you at all? Oh, sure. You know, especially the darker the job, the darker the humor, of course. And um, they played all kinds of pranks on me. And, you know, I, I and, and the police, I mean, the police were, were just, first of all, I, I was only the second woman ever hired in Manhattan. Um, the first woman left after, I think, three months. She mm-hmm. couldn't hack it. I don't know if it was that she couldn't hack the guys or couldn't hack the work. But, you know, they gave me a bit of a rough time. Um, I couldn't picture a, a woman traipsing around in these crime scenes with all these grisly deaths, but um, they weren't ready for me, so I showed them. Um, you know, the, the first time I came to a, uh, a scene, I pulled up and I was a little timid, and the cop at the door said, yeah, honey, how can I help you? I said, well, um, hi, I'm from the medical examiner's office, and I'm here to examine the body. And he's like, yeah, yeah, don't worry about it. Crime scene's already got it. I said, but, 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 but. I did my job, but I was really, I was very sheepish about it. And then the second I thought, what the hell? I'm not going to, that's not me. That's not how I'm going to be. Next time I saw a cop gave me a hard time. Yeah, honey, how can I help you? I said, I'll tell you what. You can't help me, but I think I can help you because I'm from the medical examiner's office. I'm going to go in there and look at that dead guy, and I'm going to tell you how he died, when he died, maybe even who did it. How do you like that? And then you can go to court and say, Barbara Butch told you. You say, whoa, okay. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, the cops teased me and gave me a little bit of a rough time, but I gave it back, and pretty soon I had their respect. And then the people at the office, the guys, um, they got used to me pretty fast. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they'd pull all kinds of crazy jokes on me and, you know, waving dead hands around and things and see if they can get me upset. But no, I never got upset. <laughs> I know they have an offbeat sense of humor because when I used to go out on scene for some of these things as a reporter, you know, I, I, I knew a lot of the police officers and men, so some of their jokes and humor, it's just, it was just like, dude, you know, Right, right, a murder scene. What, what, what is this? You know, mm-hmm. but I learned a lot. Just like you, I was out in the field and I got to the point because I I'd done it for six years, and I could tell like if there was a car accident, I was able to, you know, just just by looking at the tread marks, just to see which way everything went. You know, mm-hmm. to that point with what I was able to, you know, able to do. Yeah. And so I just thought it was a very interesting career to be in, and then what, especially with what you were doing, you know, that's oh. just as fascinating. Oh, it was the best job in the world. I mean, I got to see everything. Not just how people die, but how they live. You know, New York, people live all kinds of crazy ways. I got to poke mm-hmm. around in there, seeing super rich people with art all over the walls and golden furniture, and then poor people living in squats, you know, or tents along the side of the river, and everything in between. In New York, people live up in the air, and they live in tunnels beneath the ground, so... We get quite a lot of variety here. Interesting. So tell me about the first body you had to go investigate. Hmm. Oh, gosh, there was so many then. You know, I was seeing like six, seven a day. Um, But I do remember my first homicide quite well. It was very exciting. It was my first homicide on my own after training, after I was ready to go out. And... um, I was all excited. Oh, I'm going to help solve this case. We're going to really rock this. This is going to be fantastic. And I show up to the scene, and it's just a dead guy laying face down in the middle of a baseball field over by the Hudson River in a park. And um, he didn't have much about him that was special, just a middle-aged, regular-looking guy, khaki pants, polo shirt, no wallet, no identification, no jewelry, no nothing, just a hole in his head from a gunshot wound. And I was thinking, oh, damn, what am I going to do now? I have no clues. <laughs> I don't have anything. And so as the detectives gathered around, they said, well, what do you think, Doc? 
I said, well, um, I'm thinking homicide. They go, no kidding, huh? What else could it possibly be? I don't know. Maybe somebody shot down from up in the trees there. They were playing around with a rifle, shot them. Who knows? And they said, no, if you look closely at that bullet wound, you'll see something. Oh, you're right. It's close range. I can see the fouling, the stippling. Mm -hmm. So I learned very quickly. Now keep your mouth shut, Barbara, until you've got all the facts. Mm -hmm. Don't go in there with a preconceived notion like, oh, this is definitely a homicide. Go in with, take your hands off your ears and put them on your mouth. Learn to listen. Learn to observe every single thing. Mm -hmm. then you can start making pronouncements because when you go in there and start kicking around evidence and saying, Oh, could be this, could be that you lose credibility. Mm -hmm. But I do remember that I said to the guys when we were finished with the case, um, I said, Hey, this is my first homicide. Would you mind taking a picture with me? And we all lined up in our trench coats and we had a nice little picture. And that was pictures on my wall for years and years and years until somebody stole it. But that was, I was proud of that day. I learned something, I did something, and the guys were nice to me. Since you were, had already been working in, in, in the medical field, was it really hard to go out on these things? I mean, not, not so much, I'm not going to say freshies, but you know, not so much, the, not so much the, the more fresher cases, but these cases where maybe somebody, you know, had died and they had been in the house for a week or two and you had to go out and check them out. Was it hard to do that as opposed to working in medical? Well, it stunk like hell, but you know, no medical, you know, medical is a whole nother ball game. Uh, I worked in surgery for years and um, that was a lot of fun. It was a great job, got to help people, but it's, it's very technological. It's, it's mm -hmm. very much about having good hands and, and, uh, you know, good style of cutting and knowing what to do and understanding anatomy and then how to manage a patient. Mm -hmm. This death had nothing to do with that. This was already, everything was over, everything was ended. It was no technology. It was nothing I could do with my hands to make this situation any better. All I could do was get justice for the victim and some answers for their families, you know. So, um, I learned to to develop that sense of um, open-mindedness, of constant observation. You know, when I'd walk into a scene, I didn't go right to the body. I'd just stand in the doorway and get a sense of the room, get a sense of how the person lived. Mm -hmm. If I see little white bags of powder and scales and little glassine envelopes, that gives me one impression. If I mm -hmm. see library books and Birkenstock sandals and, you know, PBS tote bags, a whole nother feeling. Mm -hmm. So how people live often determines how they die. And then after I got a feel for that room, for that place, I'd start moving in and take the, uh, the apartment or the home in its entirety, you know, get a feeling for everything in there. And then I'd go in on the body and start doing my examination, my photos and stuff like that. And of course, I would first, when I came on any scene, I would ask for the HMFIC. That's the head mother in charge. Hey, boys, where's the HMFIC? And they'd point to a captain over in the corner, you know, and just go up there and say, hey, Cap, what do you got? You know, I'd get, get their impressions um, and learn to listen and learn to look. And, uh, you know, that was, that was the essence of the job was observation and interpretation of evidence. Mm -hmm. It was fun. It was so much fun. When you talk about the smell, I know the, the, the popular thing out there is put, you know, put Vicks in your nostrils. Did, did, did Vicks help or did it not help? No, no, that's, that's just on television. You know, if you put Vicks in your nostrils, then you'll hate the smell of Vicks every time you smell it later. There's nothing. And I mean nothing on this God's green earth that can mask the smell of a decomposed body. It's every disgusting thing you've ever thought of, put in a blender and then heat it up. Um, and it, it's bitter, it's sweet, it's nasty. And, you know, you can't get it out of your clothes or your hair. It sticks to you all day. You, you can't go home after that. <laughs> you know, you got to strip down and shower up. Um, 
it's just a, it's a nasty, disgusting smell, and I never got used to it, ever. Um, it's, it's the smell that, that, that tries to warn you, hey, go away, bad things here. I remember going out to fires, and, you know, the, the, the firefighters would take, you know, after it was out, of course, the firefighters would take me to the house, and that's another smell. It gets way up in your nostrils, and it just mm -hmm. stays and stays and stays with you. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. There's nothing like it. And except then you go to a barbecue later and it all comes rushing back to you. Ugh, it's horrible. Yeah. Horrible. Yeah. Um, in the years that, that you did this, are there any cases that stand out to you? Oh, sure. Um, I mean, in the book, I, I highlight just a few, uh, maybe 10, 12 cases, but I've done... Um, 5,500 death scenes and 680 homicides. So among them, there are plenty that stand out to me. Um, I mean, some of them because they were just so weird and strange mm -hmm. um, and others because they were tragic and awful. And, um, you know, among the weird and strange ones, of course, is the things that people do for recreation, um, you know, uh, like sex things, you know, people decorate themselves with ribbons and, and leather and latex and stuff. And then they, they rig up a harness to squeeze their necks and it doesn't work right. There's no, the, the trip mechanism is, is badly placed and boom, they wound up dead. And, you know, look, I don't deny anyone their pleasures. Everybody can do as they please, have a great time, but, you know, try not to do it alone <laughs> and badly constructed. You know, either have a buddy spot you um, or, or make sure your equipment is professional because you don't want to die like that. Uh, but on the, on the other side um, are the tragic deaths that just, just make no sense, especially, you know, of course, the death of children. There's nothing worse in the world. Um, and I've seen a little too many of those. Um, I think the, the, the worst case that sticks out to me is uh, the one they called the baby-faced butchers. Um, uh, that was in Central Park, uh, a middle-aged man named Michael McMorrow. He was stabbed to smithereens. I mean, the poor guy was just slashed up to nothing, to ribbons, fingers hanging off, nose hanging off, just too many times to count. He was probably stabbed 70 times. And, um, you know, it was, it was interesting. I was working with crime scene guys and we're looking at the blood drops that are leaving the park. This guy was found in a lake, Central Park Lake, a beautiful spot. And um, you could see the blood drops leaving the park on the ground in the asphalt and they had directionality. You know, you can analyze blood splatter and see where it's going. If the person's moving and dripping blood, then it's going to have a, like a, a little tail on it. The blood drags forward, leaving a tail. And so I'm looking at this, and I, I'm talking to the crime scene guy, and we're both saying, geez, that poor guy, he must have put up a hell of a fight. Maybe it was somebody much bigger than him, but he's an awfully big guy. What do you think? I don't know, maybe it's two people. And uh, we're watching these blood drops and saying the person was either running or moving very fast. Well, what it all turned out to be in the end is two 15-year-old kids, boy and a girl, Daphne Abdella and Christopher Vasquez. They were in the park on their rollerblades, and they decided they were going to kill somebody. And... This poor guy, they just slashed him to ribbons. No one has ever known why. They have never spoken of him. They were both arrested. Uh, one pleaded, pleaded guilty. The other went to trial. They only spent like seven years each in jail because they were just babies. They were 15. But the kicker to me, they did the whole killing while they were on rollerblades. Wow. Now, how the hell do you do that? That's some kind of balance, you know, to fight a big man and hack at him yeah. on rollerblades. 
it's one of those things that just makes me shake my head. I've been shaking my head over that case for 20-something years. It bothered me so much. Why would two 15-year-olds do that? And how the hell did they do it on rollerblades? So rest in peace, Michael McMorrow, but I'd love to someday sit down with those two kids who are adults now, of course, and still live in New York. I'd love to just ask them why and how. Well, that's one thing, like you were saying earlier, when you walk into uh, a house or, or a building, I mean, you, you're looking for everything in this person's life to, to, to get a feel for what they were like. Mm-hmm. And I think people forget that. You know, I, I'm not saying that people that do weird stuff shouldn't do it. I'm just saying you guys got to remember that if, if, if you do pass away alone or something happens, somebody's going to be looking through your stuff. And if you were a kind of person, you know, then that's all going to come out. I mean, your family may not even know that you're, you know, playing around yeah. with that stuff until until you get, you get the call from the, from the medical examiner's office. <laughs> that's um, right. If you're going to do weird things, be careful. Be very careful. You don't want to die that way. Um, during your career, and, and in 23 years is a long time. That's a long time to do that stuff. Was there ever a case that really frustrated you at all? Oh, sure. Um, there was a case, well, several of them frustrated the hell out of me, but there was one case that, that just pissed me off because it was, I could, I, I felt like it was a homicide, but there was nothing we could do to prove it. The police were suspicious. I was suspicious. Um, it was a, a, a very wealthy uh, couple. Um, the wife was out at, at her work at her uh, art gallery or boutique or whatever the hell it was. And the husband supposedly committed suicide by injecting himself with insulin. And uh, the wife, when she, you know, she got the call from her son, the son said, you know, dad's dead. And she came home, she walked home about four or five blocks and then she got there, and then she called the physician, the family man's physician. She didn't call 911. Mm-hmm. I was like, hmm, that's kind of unusual, isn't it? And so when the family physician, when he got the call, he walked over. And he didn't call 911 either. Hmm. Not for about 15 minutes. Well, that's suspicious. Yeah, so we were all feeling a little suspicious about this. And... Uh, the detective said to me, I'm going to go in and question him, Barbara. Come on in. I want you to, you know, talk to these folks with me. And mm-hmm. as soon as I walked in, I got it. The chemistry between this couple, between the doctor and the wife, oh, was so uh, energizing, so magnetic. I could, I just felt right away like these two were lovers. Mm-hmm. Now, am I saying that they killed him with insulin? No, I don't. Maybe not. Maybe so. But it bothered the hell out of me that whatever it was, this couple was so obvious that the husband, I'm sure he was horribly depressed. And maybe he did kill himself over the fact that his wife was in love with his doctor. Mm-hmm. And I felt like, damn it, I got I to gotta get some justice for this man. This is not right. But there was never a damn thing I could do about it. He had died of an overdose of insulin. And either he injected himself or they injected him. But there's no way to prove that. Nothing. Because nobody was there except the dead man. Mm-hmm. And dead men tell tales, but they can't always tell you everything. True, true, true. Now, when you went on scene to check these things out, how long were you on scene? You know, looking around and stuff. Depends on the case. I could, you know, do a natural death in, in half an hour, but I could, you know, there could be a double homicide that would keep me there three, four hours. Mm-hmm. You know, especially if it was multiple gunshot wounds, because you've got to look for ballis- ballistics, you know, the bullet impact marks on the walls, match them up with the position of the person and where they were standing and where the hole went in. So ballistics could keep you there all day. And then sometimes you get in those hoarder apartments, you know, where it's piled to the roof with, with trash. I don't know if you get that much out in California, but in New York, we got tons of hoarders. 
people that just save every little bit of junk that ever comes their way because it's like treasure to them. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes you got to dig through an entire apartment full of junk to find your evidence, be it a drugs, alcohol, knife, guns, anything. Um, or sometimes just prescriptions that'll tell you what's wrong with this person, why they died. So, yeah, I could I could spend hours at a scene sometimes. Hungry, too, which is always a bitch. I don't know why. I always got hungry at work. <laughs> but then there, you, you know, you can't be eating at a death scene. That doesn't look no. right. No. No. And the other question I have with this is that if there, if there, if there was family that, that was in the house at the time or, or, or they found the body... Family doesn't get to see any of this, right? They're outside so you can do your investigation. That's right. Most of the time, um, the family was asked to step out of the apartment. Now, when it was a clearly a natural death, the police would let them sit by. You know, if an elderly person died at home in bed with the family mm-hmm. present. And then I'd have to go there because they didn't have a doctor to sign a death certificate. So I'd have mm-hmm. to go check it out. So times like that, yeah, they'd still be in the apartment. But... Most of the time, protocol says the family should wait out in the hall or something because, you know, you don't want them messing up evidence. Look what happened at the uh, John Benet Ramsey case. Oh, yeah. You know, the family was all over that, picking up things, straightening up the house. The DA came in, cops came in, politicians came in. The entire town was in that little house messing up evidence. Yeah. So yeah. that was that was like the... the primary screw-up example the other thing that i used to hate about being on a crime beat was that if, if a child i mean just the children are horrible just horrible mm-hmm. and if a child drowned in a pool i would get sent out like within several two or three hours of, of, of them taking the body out you know all that to interview the family and i oh. used to feel like the grim reaper i was just I didn't like that part. I hated that part of the job. I mean, was there ever a time, you know, when you would go out, because you had all the training, you know, that you felt like the Great Reaper going out there? Oh, sure. Plenty of times. You know, there's one case that always affected me. Um, There was this uh, young guy. um, He was single, gay guy. And uh, he lived here in the city. And his mom lived down in Virginia. And they were very close, and she used to come up and visit him sometime for a weekend, and they'd go out to the theater and restaurants and go shopping and have a great time. Now, this particular weekend, he asked her to come up because he was waiting to get his HIV test to see if he was positive or not. He was nervous and scared. So his mom came up, and they had a great time that weekend. And so Saturday night, they're just sitting on the bed, drinking wine, gossiping and laughing, having a great night. And he said, oh, excuse me, I'm going to go to the bathroom. Well, she waited and waited and waited. And six, seven minutes, eight minutes, he didn't come back. So she got up to check on him. And in the living room, the window was wide open. This is up in one of those big high-rise apartment buildings. And there was a note on a stereo speaker next to the window. And it was the meanest, most horrible note. It said, Dear Mother, do not speak of this to anyone and do not tell anyone about my HIV situation. And I want you to mind your own damn business and, and just mean things like that. Hmm. And so when I when I got there, you know, we put the police that already looked out the window and saw that the guy was down 24 stories on the ground, smashed. You know, he had just walked over, written a nasty note and jumped out the window. So when I got there, his mother was in shock. She's just standing there staring straight ahead. And I asked her, I said, excuse me, ma'am, can you tell me about your son? Did he have any diseases? What? What? What are you talking about? I said, was, was there anything bothering him? What, what? What? I don't understand. Then she turned around and she started banging her head against the wall hard, very hard. And I grabbed her shoulders and I pulled her away. I said, what are you doing? She said, I'm trying to wake up. You are just a nightmare. You're just a nightmare. So I just held her for a moment, and she just, she was in the worst shock of her life. I can't imagine how would she ever get over that. This son she was so close to that she loved. How could he do this to her? How could he do it to himself? You know, 
and we'll never know. Right. We'll just never know what was in his mind. You just, yeah, it's just, that's sad. That's really sad. Mm -hmm. That's really sad. Um, when you talk about, and you talked about a little bit earlier about going on scene and, and looking for certain clues, you know, you talked about the, the, like the angle of the gunshot, you know, all that. Is, is there anything in particular that, that you would really like dig deep for? Sure. Blood spatter. Okay. Um, you know, when you, when someone is stabbed or, or, or especially if the throat is cut, mm -hmm. uh, you get a spray from arterial, arterial blood. It, it comes out with a good deal of pressure, you know, like a 120 millimeters of mercury, if you check mm -hmm. your blood pressure. And um, so it'll leave a spray pattern on the wall. And you can tell where the person was standing and from what direction they were cut. So that's a good clue, good thing to have in your pocket when you're questioning suspects, right? Mm -hmm. Or there's um, like when a person is beaten with, say, a, a table leg, you know, the first, the first strike to the head will result in blood splashing outward. But the second blow will hit that little pool of blood that's now on the head and make another splash. And as it goes backwards, like, um, you know, the table leg, blood will fling off that, cast off it's called. So you'll have splatter and fling and splash and drops and all kinds of blood spatter patterns that can help you determine how many times the person was hit where they were laying or sitting or standing, where the perpetrator was standing or sitting, and what kind of instrument they used. So, you know, I, I don't know if you know that um, that documentary or the or the, the recreation about that that guy who was an author and his wife supposedly fell down the stairs and banged her head up and had blood everywhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. And it turns out his old friend had also died similarly, had yeah. fallen down the stairs. Yeah, so two women in his life, you know. But it, it, was, it was almost comical to me as you saw people struggling to, to explain, oh, no, no, she must have tumbled forward and then leaned to the right and mm -hmm. touched the wall and then bounced to the left and then up in the air and, like, that's not how the human body works. Let's look at basic physics, you know. So the, the splash on the wall, the drip, the fling, it, it told the story quite perfectly. So to say that someone went flying down the stairs and bounced all over the place was pretty silly. They made a good show out of it, though. Now, you said earlier that, you, you know, because the, the, the crime rate and the death rate was so high at one point, that you were doing seven to eight of these things a day. How do you prepare yourself to do that many? Ooh. Well, you mean emotionally? <laughs> yeah, emotionally and physically, because, I mean, that's a lot of work. Yeah. It sure is. Oh, yeah. I was Well, I was a lot younger then. <laughs> but, you know, the main thing is the emotional uh, preparation. You have to detach. If you can walk into a crime scene where a woman and her baby are, are, have been killed you're going to have this emotional reaction washing over you, a, you know, a, a sadness, a grief, a horror, and fear. But that prevents you from doing your job effectively. You've got a responsibility to these folks. Mm -hmm. And what you do is you cut your emotions off, detach from them, and go into scientific mode, go into logical mode. You just do your work very precisely, very carefully, and you don't think about the people and what happened to them in terms of, of the fear, the horror they must have experienced. you got to cut that off. Um, you're there to figure out the physics, the evidence, the, the, the medical clues. And uh, here's the problem, though. When you start turning off one emotion, it doesn't work that way. They all go off. So I became, after a few years, I was so detached I couldn't feel anything. I was having trouble with relationships, with, with family, with friends. Uh, you know, I just didn't want to feel anything anymore. I had seen so many horrific things mm -hmm. that my mind was, was getting really crumbly. You know, it was not doing well. Um, and I had forgotten a lesson that I was taught right from the beginning. 
when I was in training, I was a pathologist, Dr. Jackie Lee. I liked her a lot. And she was doing um, an autopsy on an eight-year-old girl who'd been raped and smothered and killed. And I was horror-stricken, you know, that how could anybody do this? It was so terrifying. And I asked Dr. Lee, how do you, how do you live? How do you do this every day, all day, case after case, and then go home and have a life? She said, Barbara, you got to remember one thing and do it without fail. And that is surround yourself with things of beauty every single day. When you leave here, close a curtain and do have, have art and music and food and love and dance and everything. Just have beauty around you. Otherwise, you get ruined. You, you just, your heart closes off. Mm-hmm. And then you're no good to anyone, especially yourself. I forgot that lesson, of course, you know, running around seeing so many cases. But then after a time, I remembered it. And I went and got me a little house with a dog and a cat and a yard and you know, <laughs> trees and things to play with. And that made me happy. That brought me back to toward life. You know? Mm-hmm. I know it was my career going out on scene to some of these things. I was the only one that they would send out because I had seen so much of it that I did I did get to the point. Not so much with stuff at home in my, in my normal life, but being able to go out on these things and, and, not, and not feel a connection to them or feel bad or you know the, the, that detachment that comes on. Some yeah. people call it being hard, you know, because I've heard people call it that, but you do after a while because that's the only way you, that's a coping mechanism. You're seeing that every day, every day, every day. Yeah, but you can't get too hard because then you get compassion fatigue. You get mm-hmm. you, you shut down and you know you're not good to the families anymore. Mm-hmm. And they're the most important people there. You know, you've got to give them all your compassion and all your assistance um, to deal with the death or, or get justice. Yeah. Now, as you went out on this and on these cases, I don't know say serial killers because obviously there, there's 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 certain things to look for with that. But did did you equate like like any similarities between cases? Oh sure, um, probably. You know, in the book I talk about some of the serial killers that I met um, and sat with and had conversations with as I drew their blood or took hair samples. You know, I got to know these guys. That was weird. Uh, but yeah, there was a very much of a pattern um, up in the uh, in East Harlem, in uh, Northern Manhattan, where young girls, uh, thirteen to nineteen years old, just little teenage girls, were getting raped and killed, mm-hmm. and it went on for ten years. And they were always uh, young Hispanic girls, and um, you know the 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 manner of death was. So, I mean, the uh, the modalities of, of the killings were very similar. And uh, even after a while, I mean, this started out back in the early 90s, so we didn't have real good de- DNA technology. But mm-hmm. when they did, you know, finally uh, run DNA uh, testing on all the blood samples, semen, and hair that they had found on all these girls over the years, it all linked to one guy. They just didn't know who the guy was, say. But what a, uh, it, it was, it was a little too obvious that this was the work of one man. And what really upset the hell out of me was that it wasn't it, it wasn't uh, known. It wasn't it wasn't in the newspapers mm-hmm. because they were little black and brown girls because they were poor. So. Um, you know, if a white girl dies on Park Avenue in New York, it's all over the front page of the Times and the Daily News and every other place, you know, in the city. But mm-hmm. here all these little black and brown girls were being killed and uh, nothing much was happening about it. And it went on for 10, 11 years until they finally caught the guy by a lucky accident. And uh, that bugged the hell out of me. And that guy, by the way, his name is Aaron Key. He's in prison, of course, for, for you know, 10 life sentences or whatever. But um, he tried to sell a thing called, he called rape cards, little cards he made up that described how he raped 
and what he did to the girls. And he was selling them for 25 bucks a piece online. Isn't that something? Wow. And you know what? There's people that would buy that crap, too. There sure is. There sure is. I mean, I would have cut his damn hand off so he couldn't write anymore. But, hey, I shouldn't talk like that. I well, it's like that mass murder co collection card kit set that they used to have. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. The Charlie Manson cards and all this stuff. People are just macabre. I mean, people have a macabre side. But there's a lot of people that also that they get that stuff and take it the wrong way, too. You know, they take it literally. And that's yeah. what's scary about it. Scary yeah. about those cases. Um, I can understand you being out there, you know, doing the investigations and maybe, you know, doing and, and, and looking over everything. Did you ever really get, like, with this one, you were frustrated because, you know, they weren't mentioned in the papers or anything. But, I mean, was there ever a case where, that you went out on that, that you... I know we talked about that one with, with the wife and the doctor. Mm -hmm. But was there ever any other cases that, that, that you actually went out on that that frustrated you because because you knew you know you knew the answer and you just couldn't you just couldn't put the put the cherry on top? Not really. I think the the, the real frustration was that the homicide solve rate is just not that great. You know, nationwide it's probably about sixty percent. Um but it, it's frustrating that there's not enough manpower, enough uh, money for DNA testing, for uh, for uh, specialized testing, for uh, genetic genealogy, for instance. I mean, what a fantastic way to catch killers. Uh, genetic genealogy is, is like the latest and greatest and most interesting to me, um, you know, use of interpretation of data. Mm -hmm. And you can catch killers I mean, it's, it's, it's wonderful, but it costs about $5,000 to do that. Now, the government is handing out $5,000 every time you want right. to, uh, you know, solve a, a homicide. I don't know why not, because we're sending all that money over to, to you know, have wars and, and stuff in the oil fields. But um, that bothered me a lot. That's very frustrating. When you know there is a way to catch a killer... But mm -hmm. just for money, you're not going to do it. So, uh, yeah, that, that pisses me off quite a bit, you know, because those, those killers, those rapists, you, they, you don't know who they're going to target next. Could be right. you. You, you right. it could be anybody. Right. Mm -hmm. They're not confining themselves to, um, you know, the poor side of town. They go go wherever the, they please. Um so, you know, when they call it the Golden State Killer with, with uh, DNA and, and genetic genealogy, that was a mighty fine example of, of putting a stop to this. Um, and then we have the, the Long Island serial killer here, out at, you know, the Gilgo Beach, uh, 11 bodies. Mm -hmm. um, I happened to go to, he, he, he lived a few blocks from me where I grew up, and I went to high school with his sister. He was a little younger than me, but... You know, this creepy guy was able to get away with this for years and years and years. But bring in DNA, bring in some good analysis of, you know, family, and there you go. Well, a good example out here of that is the East Area Rapist. Oh, yeah. Yep. He did that He did that whole 23andMe thing. Mm-hmm. And they were able to match the database and all that. Yep. yep. It's incredible. It's incredible what they can do now. Mm -hmm. When you compare the technology, like like when we first started talking, when you compare the technology when you first started doing this, as to what it was like when you retired, how big of a, a technology jump was there? Oh, it's it's a world of difference, absolute world of difference. I mean, back then in '92, we were using Polaroid cameras, and so you know our our photos faded in like four or five years. So if the case mm -hmm. wasn't solved then, well, you didn't have photos anymore. Mm -hmm. But uh, we had. We had a very, very limited uh, serology and, you know, just beginning uh, with DNA analysis. Um, and nowadays, we've not only got, you know, basic DNA analysis, but we have mitochondrial DNA and low copy and all these incredible um, uh, iterations. And, you know, oddly enough, one of the reasons that DNA is so advanced today is because of the World Trade Center, because of 9-11. When 9-11, during the attack of 9-11, you know, nearly 3,000 people were blown into little tiny smithereens. And DNA 
to identify uh, people by, you know, a tiny little piece of tissue requires that the DNA become, the testing become more and more refined, that new generations are, are developed for testing. And in that period, um, you know, it advanced at least three, four generations. And we've got all kinds of testing right now that, that really helps um, to identify the dead and to to link suspects to to the dead. Um, and I, I think one of the, it's a simple technology, but video cameras, you know, this is cameras everywhere now for security. So if you're going to do a crime, they'll probably catch you going to the store, buying the bullets, buying the gun, driving in your car, going to the scene, killing the guy, and then going home to have a shower afterwards. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's cameras everywhere, which I personally love. I think that's a real good idea. Tell me a little bit, you know, I know you mentioned earlier about getting swabs and whatnot from these, these killers. I mean, well, I, I know they had no choice, obviously, but... You being a woman and you know facing say a male killer, I mean a lot of them are sweet as pie because they they never do it. So tell me about a couple of the ones you 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 did had to work with like that. Well, you know I I learned real fast how to become persuasive. A lot of guys they'd refuse DNA um, uh, sampling. They'd refuse to give blood. They'd refuse to let me take hair samples. Now of course you just swab the inside of the cheek and that's Mm -hmm. all you have to do. Back then, you needed to pull 30 hairs from their head by the roots and pubic hair, too. So (laughs) it was not good. So I'd tell the guy, you know, look, you got a court order here. You're going to have to do it. And he'd say, nope, I ain't doing it. I ain't doing it. And I'd say, oh, look, I'll tell you what. They would like nothing more than to tie you down like an animal. And you know they're going to do that. They're going to have four corrections officers holding you down, and they're going to strap you down, and they're going to get this blood one way or the other. They're going to treat you like a dog. So you can either do that, or you can work with me, stand up strong like a man, and let's just do this thing, all right? The choice is yours. It's up to you. And most of the time, they say, all right, just do it. Because they knew I was right. They were going to be treated like a dog. So at least I could give them a little bit of dignity, a little respect, you know. Um, But, you know, most of the time, the really, the scary guys were the ones that were real sweet. I'd say, excuse me, sir, I'm going to have to pull 30 hairs from your head and say, yes, ma'am, do what you have to do. And then they look up at you real innocent like, you know. <laughs> so. Yes, all those guys can be spooky. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's right. Very spooky. I've interviewed a few in jail, so it's like, yeah. And, yep. and they never and they never do it. So I mean it's it's just like, you know, they're all innocent. Yeah. Um what do you have to say to somebody who wants to get into your line of work? Um Get a good scientific background. Uh, It's no longer the case that just being a PA or a doctor can get you the job. If you want to work in the big cities with all the action is, uh, get yourself a forensic science degree, criminalistics, um, get some good scientific background. You know, forensic anthropology is is a good one. Um, And then invariably the, the agency that you get to work for will give you the investigative training as long as you have a good scientific background. Now, here's the strange thing, though, about this country is that we have a mixed system of elected coroners and appointed medical examiners and pathologists. Mm -hmm. In upstate New York and some counties, in order to be the coroner, you get elected all you have to be is 18 years old with a driver's license and a high school graduation. That's it. Now, they tell you that they want you within a year to have to get adequate training, but no one has defined that training. No one has set the protocols and the standards that forces them to do so. So you get some kid showing up at your homicide scene. <laughs> That's why people can get away with murder. Um 
and you you have uh, other jurisdictions where you have to be a forensic pathologist and you have to be a PA or a, mm-hmm. uh, you know have a master's degree in science, and uh, it depends on where you live and where you go. So justice is a little uneven across this country. Some people will not get an autopsy, and others will always get an autopsy depending on you know the case. But if you've got a a $10,000 budget in your county for autopsies, that means you can only have maybe two or three done. So which ones are you going to do? You know, you got to save that money. So how do you pick and choose who gets an autopsy and who doesn't? That's why you have cases like this uh, Chad Daybell and Laurie Vallow. Right. You know, she was just sentenced to a couple of life life terms today for mm-hmm. killing her mm-hmm. children and uh, plotting to kill her her husband's wife, her husband's wife, yeah, her husband's ex wife. Um, you know, she this this Chad Daybell's wife. You know, he woke up one morning and she was dead on the floor, and the coroner came there and did an investigation, and he said, "Hey, eh, you know, she wasn't feeling well yesterday." So I guess she just died. And they went, yeah, I guess so. Looking at her, yeah, she looks like she's dead, whatever. <laughs> and um, he said, I don't, I don't want a, an autopsy. They said, okay, fine. And they sent her off and buried her. Well, of course, you know, when they dug her up again and did an autopsy, of course, she had a fractured hyoid bone from being strangled, right? So um, it, it depends on, on who's investigating your death and, you know, you got to hope that somebody who's well-trained and uh, well-educated in forensics is, is looking at you. You yes. know, or, or do, we, do we really care, though, once we're dead? I don't know. I, I think right. I care. You know? <laughs> um, my last question for you, and uh, this has been terrific. Just terrific Thank interview. You. I thank you for coming on. Thank you. During the career that you did, if you were given a chance to decide to, you know, to, to, to take two career paths, like, you know, become what you did and something else, would you still take the same path, you think? You know, I think about that a lot. And the answer is absolutely yes. I would do it a little differently. I would take better care of myself psychologically mm-hmm. and emotionally because, you know, I got pretty ruined there in the end. But, uh, yeah, Absolutely. It's, it's a wonderful job. You get to do a little good in the world, but you also get to have incredible good fun running around with cops, jumping up and down in helicopters and in and out of strange burning buildings and, you know, all kinds of fun things. It's, it's a great job for a woman um, who wants to get ahead and, and do exciting things and mm-hmm. use your brain. And I loved it. I loved every second of it. I wouldn't trade it for the world. It sounds like it. And one more question. How long did it take you to write this book? Oh, two and a half years. It was during the COVID time. So, you know, I figured it's either now or never. I might die from COVID. If I want to tell these stories, I want to get this story down. I better do it right now. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on. I so appreciate it. I'd love to get you on again to pick your brain, man. This was cool. Thank you. Thank you so much, Charlotte. And Stay safe. People, and how can people find you? Uh, my website, barbarabutcherauthor.com. Okay. And the book is called What the Dead Know, Learning About Life as a New York City Death Investigator. And Butcher is my real name. <laughs> All right, Barbara. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Have a great rest of your evening. And uh, thank you. Just thank you. Thank you. Stay safe. You have a great one. All right. Yep. Learned a lot. I love talking. To, I love talking to people like that. It's like my good friend Donna Frankart is sitting in the chat room down there, and uh, she's a frequent guest, and we're going to be getting her on soon. She's got another book. She's got another book coming out to talk about her experiences as being a, a, a deputy coroner. So, yeah, it's it's, it's I just uh, it's, it takes me back to when I was working, you know, and, and, and looking at these different cases and stuff. Okay. Tomorrow we're shifting gears. Tomorrow's going to be an interesting show. M.K. Davis is with us. And M.K. Davis has been studying uh, Bigfoot, Sasquatch, you know. And uh, he's taking a look at that famous uh, film, that, that, that Patterson-Gimlin film, you know, you know, when they were out uh, around Bluff Creek out there and they had the, 
they, they antiquated video camera and they happened to see what they thought was a female Sasquatch crossing a, crossing a field area. And he's, he, he has taken that film and, and, and analyzed it. And he's been able to, to, without doing anything with Photoshop, he's been able to do some highlighting on it. And it's pretty incredible stuff when you see it. So he's going to be on tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. to talk to us about that. And I'll, and I'll actually have some photos to show you guys of, of the stuff that, he, that he's been able to enhance on this. So it should be interesting. So be on the lookout for that at 6.30 p.m. Pacific tomorrow. Again, um, if you're interested in, in rating, ringing in the full moon, uh, join me at 7.45 tomorrow evening, and I will be doing a, a, a uh, guided meditation for that. Uh, you can sign up over at the California Haunts Meetup page, so California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team Meetup.com, and uh, sign up over there. Check it out under events. Saturday, I'm again, I'm teaching a psychic development class one, and that's a basic intro into psychic development. And Sunday, I will be teaching again uh, for people that might want to join my paranormal team. We've been around for almost 20 years. So, you know, we're a good team. And check us out. And uh, that'll be Sunday, will be that class. And that's all over at the meetup. So you have to sign up over at the meetup. Doesn't cost anything to go to meetup. Okay. All right. Anyway, I want to thank you all for coming. I really appreciate it. And I hope you guys got a lot out of this. I, I know I did. So, uh, real excited to have her on. And, uh, Looking forward to maybe get her back on at some point. But anyway, that being said, if you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. Uh, we're equal opportunity here. We're just looking to get the word out, okay? And the more people that, that, that share it, the more people come to us and watch the show. All right? So anyway, thank you very much. And I will show you her contact information in the book. And I will see you guys tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. So here we go. The website is barbarabutcherauthor.com, all lowercase. And of course, the book is What the Dead Know by Barbara Butcher. And you can get that through her website or, of course, at amazon.com. All right, guys, I will see you tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Have a great evening, everyone.